0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well With All.
1: Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
2: I'm Callie Crossley, this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. How we define gender is shifting, and so is the way we talk about it. Most notably, the way we use gender pronouns. For example, he, him for a man, she, her for a woman, or they, them for someone who doesn't identify with either gender. It's a change that has come easy for some, but for many people, it's an adjustment that can be anxiety-inducing, as they worry about saying the wrong thing. And then there are still others who simply don't get why there is a need for a change. Later in the show, what do Ina, Yodam, and Carla have in common? They're all chefs who have cookbooks flying off the shelves. How can it be that the old-fashioned print cookbook is still all the rage, even in the age of digital download?
0: Cooking is a tactile experience, and a cookbook is a tactile experience. Under the
2: Radar food contributor Amy Traverso and I sift through dozens of new cookbooks and savor our top five. Cookbooks are our December selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. But first, joining me in the studio today are Jessica Hallam, LGBT Program Director at Harvard Medical School's Office for Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Partnership. Hello, Jessica. Hello. (laughs) And Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, also known as Bagley, and a regular Under the Radar contributor. Welcome back, Grace. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, let me start this way you know, every now and then people ask me, what are you working on, uh, what's coming up? And I would mention this subject. And to a person, people said, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God <laughs> you are doing in. this conversation it. about pronouns because I, I just don't know. I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I'm, I'm not, I don't feel certain. So obviously this is a topic that we want to discuss. So let me start with both of you, ask you for your pronouns. And then um, if you would both say, why we are at this space now and 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 why it's important for us to have this conversation Oh, that's so great. I'll start
3: with you, Jessica. Well, thank you so much for asking for my pronouns. And uh, that is how this conversation is beginning, right? Uh, many of us are in spaces now where we're being asked to present our pronouns. So mine are she and hers. Yes,
1: and and uh, mine are also she, her, and hers. And I think we are in a particular historical moment, especially here in Massachusetts, with the recent uh, ballot initiative uh, on mm. November 6th that actually put uh, um, uh, legal protections for transgender people up, for public vote, and it was successful. Uh, we were able to secure those votes, but I think, as part of that process, there was an enormous amount of public education and more conversation than ever before about gender, transgender, pronouns, and identities.
2: Uh, well, talk to me about why this is important, because some people are hearing this and thinking, oh, God, well, we just do what we used to do? Right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> let me just start by saying transgender people have always been here transgender people exist in every culture, in every time in history. Language has changed. Whether or not they were out and known to us might be different, but this is not a new phenomenon. And I think that's important to sort of step back and remind each other that this conversation might be new, the language might be new, but the people have always been among us. And um, I think that's what's really exciting is that we're now in a place where people can be more comfortable telling us their, their truth and some of their story and their journey and let us be a part of it. I do have to say, I think it's the young people, especially around pronouns. I think the young people are really pushing us all to make sure that when we say we're creating inclusive space, that Mm -hmm. it truly is inclusive and they want to be there and present and be fully represented in that space. And so they're saying, I need you to know who I am so that I can fully participate.
2: Um, That's my guest, Jessica Hollum. She's at Harvard's medical school. Same thing for you, Grace.
1: Yes, absolutely. I agree. Uh, There's more information information available for young people at earlier age than at any point in the history of our world through the internet and other sources. And so young people are identifying at earlier ages than ever before, or at least having language to describe those feelings at an earlier age than ever before. And so they're bringing that to parents, to teachers, to people that in the community, in their faith-based community, wherever they are. And so it's requiring adults to respond differently around safety, around respect, around diversity, and really, Making sure that children and young people are being able to live their lives authentically.
3: And let me just say I I know when this conversation comes up because. Grace and I both spend our days talking to regular folks about this Mm -hmm. conversation. And I know that at that moment, people can say, well, are they being influenced by the internet? Is this something that's, you know, being sort of like, um, it's it's infiltrating their lives. And I just want to remind people, it's just language that we use to describe ourselves, who we are as a journey hasn't changed, Mm -hmm. who young people are, how they express themselves. You know, the gender diversity we have seen in young people has always, existed. But what we know now is that we have more language to describe. So I just want to say it's the language catching up with people's experiences.
2: And I have to say there's a power in language. You know, I sit here as a, an African-American woman, by by the way, my pronouns are she, her, Thank you. Um, having uh, gone through the Negro to black right. to African-American, that's quite meaningful. It's not parallel in the same way, but but I'm getting to the point that language matters to people. How people are described, it matters. So two stories. I was at a college a few weeks ago uh, in a class, and the teacher said, you know, will everybody go around and give their pronouns? And these are all young people, and they were just like, ba-da-ba-da, 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 ba-da-ba-da. nobody batted an eye. In fact, probably people were on their phones, half of them. They were supposed to be introducing themselves to me. And I just thought, look at the ease in which. You know, if there was some uncomfortableness in the room, I did not sense that. They were very easy with each other. And that's one story. So here's the other story I'm going to tell on myself, which is another reason that motivated this conversation. So I'm having a conversation at this very desk with a transgender actor. And I was so uncomfortable that I was going to misplace they that I twisted my whole body around this desk to make sure that I was facing they (laughs) so that I could say, and you? (laughs) and never say anything beyond the name. This is where we're at for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speak to that if you would. I (laughs) I really
3: want to say that I am not interested in gotcha moments. I am not interested in being an LGBTQ activist who is here to find out that you messed up and call you out on it. We have to stop that. Um, We really have to sort of be much more empathetic and compassionate towards each other. We're all on a journey. We're all trying to figure out things out here's the truth. We're going to make mistakes, right? We're going to mess up. And we're going to have to learn as human beings how to make a mistake and how to apologize and get corrected and move on. And at the same time, we also have to just dive in there, right? And mm-hmm. try to get to know each other better and want to know more. We are afraid of messing up. My anxiety around that is that it keeps us from getting in there, right? Like really getting in there and getting to know each other. So I want to say it is going to be messy, but we need to do it.
2: And so Grace, when I was I was twisting my body around here at the table, I was so ashamed. Uh, I was so, you know, like how pathetic are you that you can't get yourself to say the right thing? Well,
1: you know, there's a world <laughs> of difference, and we know this in the community, there's a world of difference between someone who genuinely makes a mistake and and means well and, and is happy to be corrected and move forward, and somebody who deliberately mispronouns someone. <laughs> somebody who refuses to acknowledge our identities or use the terms that we use to describe ourselves. And so I think the, the people of genuine goodwill, you know we, I, I would agree everything that Jessica said. We need to sort of get to know each other, have those conversations. If mistakes are made, we are gently corrected and move forward. And really the challenges are folks who are, are refusing to acknowledge that transgender people exist, re- refusing to acknowledge our identities and therefore are not treating us respectfully.
2: Maybe we can go back and do a little bit of biology and psychology, if you will. And by the way, that was my guest, Grace Sterling Stoll, uh, executive director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, also known as Bagley. And by that I mean uh, helping people understand that you can be assigned a sex at birth. But that doesn't correspond with who you are, or who you know yourself to be. And that can take a minute to figure out sometimes. You don't exactly get it at the beginning.
3: Right. right. Done. <laughs> you just, you yeah. just did it perfectly. Well, no, I, 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 I'm going to be out of a job. You no, just literally it. figured it all out. And yep. my job here is done.
2: Yeah. No, no. I need a little bit more. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, why is that important for people to understand? Because that's the whole you know, the expression cisgender, which some people are just coming to hear as Mm -hmm. well, means that you have a sense of personal identity that lines up with where you were assigned at birth. So for me, she and her lines up with, what I was assigned at birth. It just doesn't happen for everyone.
1: Right. We're all we're all assigned a sex at birth, and usually female or male, and, and based on genitalia, usually. And for many people, that identity fits how they identify, and they would not have any cause to question that throughout their lives. And yet, for others of us, our assigned sex at birth does not match how we identify and or how we want to express ourselves. And as you said, yes, it is, a, in that sense, it's more about, there's a difference between uh, biology around chromosomes, hormones, primary and secondary sex characteristics, and our psychology, our identities, how we express ourselves and how we want to live our lives in the world. For those of us where those identities are are not uh, consistent, at least according to the standards of the culture, it's important to note that even in terms of biology, there is variation uh, of various Mm -hmm. degrees of intersexuality. And so whether or not that is present, we certainly know that those who identify in a way that is not consistent with their biology, biological sex we have to kind of figure that out mm-hmm. and come to terms with that and that's how we identify and that's for other people to recognize that that it, it's who we are and as Jessica said we've always been here we've always been part of all communities and all cultures at all points in time and it's just that we have more awareness and more conversation about it now
2: yeah um, as we go along I'm just gonna you know throw out some terminology to help Please. people go on so that's what we mean by you've just described what we mean by non-binary you know for people to, to understand if they hear that expression that's what it means. It feels a little scientific and, and strange
3: for a lot of people. But that's people identify but, as neither yes. or either
1: or right. both and. N- yeah. do not, not comfortably in male or female or man or woman. Right, yeah. exactly.
3: And I think there's a piece of this also, you know, don't forget, I could identify as a woman, but that still doesn't tell you what kind of a woman mm-hmm. I am or how I'm going to uh, perform my gender or express my gender, right? You know, Grace and I are dressed kind of differently, mm-hmm. right? We actually have different hair. Mm-hmm. We're, we're doing womanness ness in, in slightly different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also... And a, then me too. And then you too, <laughs> yeah, right? That's right? True. Yeah, And it's right. so important. <laughs> yeah. I think some of this is so yeah. exciting because um, it's truly, Grace and I were first and foremost before gender advocates, we talked a lot about feminism. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. feminism was really a helpful conversation Mm -hmm. for unpacking rigid gender roles, Mm -hmm. rigid gender um, ideas about what is a woman, what is she supposed to be like. And this gender conversation is really along those lines of saying the binary is not working, how I express myself and look on, from one day to the next might be different than how I identify, than what it says on my driver's license. Let's all just, you know, pay attention that we have multitudes to express. Our engineer,
2: Doug Sugars, sent us a picture from his coffee shop that says do not assume you know what my pronouns are. Yeah.
1: Mm. that's great. I like when,
2: that. yeah. um, which mm-hmm. I thought was, great. you know, mm-hmm. speak to that, Grace. That I mean, we shouldn't be assuming. Right, right. And (laughs) And and
1: in many ways, that's probably the the fundamental retraining for all of us, Mm -hmm. regardless of Mm -hmm. even those of us in the trans community in that to not assume to not assume when we look at someone that we know that how they identify, that we know what pronouns that they use, that we know that we even know about their lives. And there's a lot of assumptions that go into traditional gender roles and, and assigned sex at birth. And for many of us, it's just not accurate. And that's including not just trans and non-binary people, mm-hmm. but cisgender people too. As, as Jessica said, feminism was really challenging that 40, 50 years ago around what it means to be a woman, what does it mean to be a man as well. And this is sort of broadening that to really make sure that we're not making assumptions in terms of anyone's identity. Mm-hmm.
2: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Jessica Hallam of Harvard Medical School and Grace Sterling Stowell of Bagley. We're discussing pronouns and how language around gender is evolving. So here we are. And let's say you you know you're fully invested. You're an ally, capital A, you think you got the language down and, you know, wherever you go, you're going to start that conversation in a room. Let's everybody tell their pronouns. Well, both of you have said in different ways, eh, maybe you need to step back a minute and ask a few questions before you dive in. Talk, about that if you would yeah
3: <laughs> this is something that I have been thinking a lot about recently the sort of required pronoun go-round especially in a classroom and a young person setting I am very aware that it can put the onus on people to self-declare who might not be ready to self-declare I want to be aware that it might not be a safe space to say that I also just want to say there's people who might not be aware of why we're doing it mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and there's a piece of that that it might cause some confusion or friction against and that's not the point. And I also just want to say, as a facilitator, I also, you know, I can't remember can't what remember. everyone has said. Mm-hmm. And so it almost, for me, my anxiety around the pronoun go-round is, are we setting it up as the, okay, now we did it, now we're done, mm-hmm. I've taken care of transgender people. Mm-hmm. And for me, the anxiety is, I don't think it's enough. I don't think we're doing it well. I think it's a, some well-meaning people use it as a bit of a checkbox. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I want us to sort of step Back and say, what's our goal here? Mm-hmm. Are we really trying to create a space where people can express themselves and let us know who they are? Respect that people are on a journey that might change while I know them, uh, you know. And really, how, and how can we do introductions better, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. In Just general, in general, yeah, yeah. right. And so I think it's become a little bit of a an issue that needs to be thought about. And
1: and for you, Grace. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that perhaps in small group settings mm-hmm. where people are going to have some you know ongoing conversations directly with each other. Mm-hmm. That That is important. But in a a large group or large classroom, a large setting where where it's just so many people. And right. Who does remember that? You know, you're not going to say, oh, yes, that third person from the left said they, them. And that person next to them said she, her. And it does out people, especially those who are gender non-binary. If, you know, if your answer is he or he or him or she or hers, that sort of fits into what people are expecting to hear. Mm -hmm. If somebody says they or them then some heads may turn. Mm-hmm. Who, who said that? And mm-hmm. what does that mean? And now they're being scrutinized. So I think it is important for us to be looking at to what end, to what purpose, and in what setting is that helpful and appropriate? And what setting is that not? And maybe some larger conversations too around why we're doing that.
2: So practically on the ground then, what should, because I can hear people going, well, what am I supposed well, to I, do? I know, yeah. right. I, <laughs> I, I run yeah. a
3: classroom. I'm starting a new semester. Yeah. You know, I think it's about stepping back and thinking about two things. One is, how can you make sure your space is safe and inclusive for transgender non-binary people. Like, if you're really trying to do this, like, let's, you know, the harder part is about navigating the systems. I think about all the ways that life is hard for transgender people. Like, let's tackle some of those. And then I think about introductions. Is there a way that privately people can tell you on a sign-up sheet? Is there a way that we can start to speak of each other by their first names? Could we start calling everybody they? You know, is there a way that we could just maybe make the space, maybe even think about why does this need to be a gendered space? Mm-hmm. You know, do we have to gender this space right now or can we all just think about it in a, in a more thoughtful way, I guess? Mm-hmm.
1: I would agree with all that. There isn't a one-size-fits-all. And so I've been often asked those questions over the years, and they want the short answer. And there isn't, you know, that—and especially since the trans community is so diverse, you know, there are folks who would say, absolutely, I want that opportunity. I'd like to identify. I'd like to—someone else says, no, I just want to blend in. I just want to be a student. I just want to be a participant. I just want to be a a co-worker. Mm -hmm. And so because there isn't a one-size-fits-all, it's important to think more broadly around what are we trying to do in this space and and really if we're trying to create safety and uh, recognition and support around inclusivity and diversity it's to have the broader conversations and, and maybe then pronouns come from that but to really say there's lots of people in this room with lots of different identities some of them are privileged and some of them are oppressed mm-hmm. and holding all of those together is the challenge and then you can even brainstorm mm-hmm. so what kind of things would people want in this space that would help all of us feel safer. At that point, we're not signaling out trans people. Mm-hmm. We're recognizing that people have many identities that are not privileged in our culture.
3: I'm with Grace. I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great idea. So the
2: two of you are dealing uh, in general with different age populations. And so I wonder if we're at a space in 2018 now where your responses to the to your constituents, so to speak, is a little bit different, even though we're talking about the same thing. So Grace Sterling Stoll, you are dealing with young people. That's a mm-hmm. whole youth is in your your title, the title right. of your mm-hmm. organization, and uh, Jessica, you're dealing with, you know, still young people, but older adults. Yeah, um, I get the old doctors too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'll start with you, Grace. Is mm-hmm. there a way? I, I'm curious uh, that in 2018, that the young people that you deal with feel very comfortable. You've just said everybody's individual. We cannot do a one size fit all. Mm-hmm. But is there some truism that we can look to? Uh, well, for your group? It, it, you mm-hmm. know, when I
1: think of the young people mm-hmm. who come to Bagley in our programs or the Agleys across the state, they're in many ways that's a self-selected group. It's mm-hmm. young people who are already identifying in mm-hmm. certain ways or at least questioning. And so the space that we try to provide but and, and the youth peer leaders and adult staff together provide that is one of openness. We're not labeling people. We're not expecting people to present in a c- certain way or identify in a certain way. We accept what they're bringing to us. We Say okay. This is this is the name the person wants to use at this point. The pronoun. The, this is how they're going to present uh, in terms of clothing or whatever. And and if that changes, that's okay too. We'll we'll adapt to that. So we're really trying to create an environment that's open and affirming and fluid. But that's within an LGBTQ. Youth support right, group. Right. So when those young people are out in school or with their families or in the on the streets or wherever they are in other settings, they have to navigate all mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. and sort of figure out then what am I going to present, what what's important for me to say and what isn't. And each young person's different on that. We have very strong out there activists that are making the world a better place by challenging their school systems and challenging their, their youth organization or their or their church uh, or wherever or family members. Or family members, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we have others where they're not ready to do that. Mm-hmm. They're really trying to take care of themselves and yeah, survive. That's fair. And, yes. and that's, that's okay, too. Okay.
3: Yeah.
2: And for you, Jessica.
3: What, what am my, Well, I think about uh, my constituents in a couple different ways. First and foremost, I am trying to get doctors and those in medicine to un- Cleave sex and gender, just mm. like you started off this mm-hmm. show by saying, mm-hmm. "Like my ultimate goal is for everyone to understand the difference between sex and gender." Period. Mm-hmm. Every single person, and and that's our that's our real big revolution that we're doing uh, at Harvard Medical School. And let me tell you, that's if it was easy. It would be easy. Mm -hmm. And it is not. Our entire world is organized around a gender system, Mm -hmm. right? And this idea of the conflation, even before that, the conflation between gender identity and sexual orientation, right? Mm -hmm. So before transgender, we often conflated lesbians and gay men with, right? So, I mean, there's just, there's so much going on that's so deep and is so deeply human that I'm really working on this sort of larger conversation that's really everybody, all hands on deck kind of conversation. On the other hand, I've got an amazing group of doctors in training, 20% of the current class at Harvard Medical School defined somewhere along the lines of LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. 20%. And and I know, so (laughs) this has been the goal. The goal has been to have healthcare and medicine reflect the world that we live in, Mm -hmm. right? So now we're going to have doctors who identify as Mm non-binary. We're going to have doctors who identify as transgender asexual. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got gay Muslim doctors in training at Harvard Medical School, right? Wow. I mean, mm-hmm. it is happening mm-hmm. and very, very small percentage of them are white. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in a very diverse, mixed group of young people who are coming into medicine today. So what I see happening is that Harvard faculty are saying, all right, well, we got to keep up with the new doctors. Yeah. Right? We've yeah. got to – so it might be driving it a little bit mm-hmm. is that this is who the the students are, and that's exciting. They want to be responsive and respectful to who the new students are.
1: Okay. So. No, could I, I add one thing to yes, that? Yes, please. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, you mentioned the sexual orientation, and I think that's important, yeah. that often when we have community conversations around gender, gender identity, and so forth, we leave out sexual orientation mm-hmm. as though it's completely unconnected mm-hmm. that it, it exists on this separate thing, that there are gay, lesbian, bi people over here or straight people, and there are transgender people over here. So it's important to remember that we, we all have a sexual orientation of one kind or another, mm-hmm. including asexuals, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge that transgender gender and gender non-binary people also have a range of sexual orientations. Straight, gay, bi, pansexual, and asexual as well. And so uh, while sexual orientation and gender identity and expression are not at all the same thing, there, there's also a connection around how, who we desire and how we identify mm-hmm. and how we express ourselves and the intermingling of all of those things. So
2: what do you say to somebody who's listening to this and they're going, my whole mind is blown. I can't even I don't even know how to enter into the space. I'm so overwhelmed by this. What what do you say it's, to folks?
3: It's <laughs> I mean, listen, take if,
2: a deep breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Gender questioning your very gender is huge. And that is really, I think, what people like Grace and I are trying to get everyone to see—that it's not just some of us who are thinking about our gender, but we want everyone to think about their gender. We want everyone to question, you know, what have you accepted that was handed to you about what kind of woman to be or what kind of man to be? What messages did you just, you know, take on without thinking? You know, we want people to feel confident in how they get to express themselves and how they get to live in the world. And we think that's really, you know, breaking down the gender binary is really. Really good for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so it is a completely difficult, hard thing to wrap your head around. And I just want to really honor that it is a hard conversation to have in the car on the way to the grocery store mm-hmm. with your kid, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Again, this is our entire world is based around some of this gender stuff. And so unpacking it, re- unlearning it, rethinking it, it could take a lifetime.
2: Right. So, And so the, the entry point for so many people, Grace, is really going to be the pronouns. And mm-hmm. that's where they start to think about, okay, well, where where am I in this, and and why am I uncomfortable if I am uncomfortable, or how am I respectful mm-hmm. uh, of the individual, as you've said, but also be I don't want to offend, mm-hmm. but I want to you know acknowledge that I'm here and I see you, mm-hmm. you know as you are, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And for me, I always suggest to people it depends on the setting. If you mm-hmm. are at a, at a social event and you're being introduced to someone, perhaps you might be the person to say, hi, my name's Grace and I use she, her pronouns. Mm-hmm. That already signals that you're somebody, whether or not you're trans or cisgender yeah. or whatever, and that signals that you're thinking about that mm-hmm. and that you're okay with that. The other person might want to return that in kind or not, mm-hmm. but at least you put that out there. In the in the absence of knowing, sometimes it's, it, I, I've often been in that situation myself, I'll I'll avoid using a pronoun until I get more information, mm-hmm. and that's different than if you're in a work setting with a coworker. It's different than if you're in a school setting. It, it, that's why I say there's no one size fits all. That that really it has to be geared towards the situation and what what the other person is is actually putting out for you. Because for some they'll introduce themselves that way, and others. They won't. And I know there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. Absolutely. This is a journey, this is a process, and we're all in it together. And the more we don't all, we don't have to have all the answers because no one has all the answers yeah. there because there's, there's not one set of answers. It's more yeah. being open to a process.
2: Where would you put pronouns that we've devoted our segment to along the spectrum of really sort of coming to grips with with your the overarching message is which is I think Jessica you said you are not your genitals <laughs> thank you thank you said that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. I mean this
3: is terrible to have to think about genitals but um or wonderful I'm sorry I said that um in it, this way is, you so yeah so it's pron right you're, so what you're trying to get at is is pronouns just the beginning mm-hmm. right and I think one of the things I would offer in that anxiety moment, thinking about here, you're listening to this and you're thinking, I have no idea how to do this and I, I want to be... Present. I want to be thoughtful. You know, have some curiosity, excitement, enthusiasm, some interest in getting to know people better. And I, and again, exactly as Grace said in the beginning, we know when you're interested to get us kn- to getting to know us better, right? And so I think if you say it in a way like, Hey, what pronouns do you use? Mm-hmm. Or how should I address you? Or I'm about to introduce you to somebody, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, it's like, I'd like you're at a networking ad- event. Yeah. I'd like to introduce you to my boss. How should I introduce you? And the person might say, something different than what you even imagined. And so I think a part of it is really to see it as the full picture of, I want to get to know this person better, right? Mm -hmm. And practice. It's okay to practice Mm -hmm. saying they, them, practicing LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. you know, practicing transgender, right? Um, I like to say lesbian with a little bit of panache. (laughs) Okay, Jeff just... <laughs> okay. It helps. Breaks the ice, right? See? Yeah. It's funny. Okay. Yeah.
2: Well, one of the things I, I did want to pick up <laughs> on is that in the getting comfortable with that, that sometimes people feel as though, all right, so I'm all there, I'm I'm doing all of this, but they is grammatically incorrect, <laughs> and so I, I'm fighting my my uh, good training, yes. Grace, <laughs> yeah. that I you know suffered through to yes. get to this point. And they is grammatically incorrect. What am I supposed to do? Well,
1: you know that I I have heard many people say that, and I and I'm old enough to remember when we, when we were trying out other more gender neutral terms, and they never caught on. Mm-hmm. They were too unusual or too awkward, uh, and and yet they, them, theirs is to really is starting to catch on. Mm-hmm. So uh, yes, it's un familiar it's not entirely grammatically correct especially depending on the particular way its usage and yet if you look at it, it is but this is the this is the respectful way to to refer to the person who's asking us to use those terms so it it just changes the dynamic then it becomes oh then i need to work through my own discomfort mm. then i i need to figure that out so that this person doesn't so that this person feels safer or more comfortable or more welcomed and as jessica said it's a practice we, we now sort of have a default at bagley we we say they them and there to almost everyone mm. until they tell us otherwise yeah. oh, like if we if we, if we don't yeah. know we just say they came in and and they were asking for such and such and and until we we get something say no i'm she her or i'm he him mm. then that's what we go with
2: oh, okay. Well, that, that's a practice. So I wanted to give some practical, you know, advice mm-hmm. to people as they're listening to this so that we can, you know, all feel more comfortable after hearing both of you who are right in the thick of, you know, yeah. this evolution. And I have to say, we're probably being here in Boston and on the one of the coasts mm. probably way yeah. more advanced than you'll find other places.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, I think we have more opportunities to practice. Yeah. I, it's, you know, mm. it's not, there's lots of queer people in the middle of the country, but they don't have as many spaces where they get mm. to ask this of us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a part of it is that the fun part about being in Boston and New England is that we get to really practice at a coffee shop and the classroom.
1: And what I would add too is that a reminder of sort of the the importance of all of this that the the trans and non-binary people were a community under attack and we've mm-hmm. been we have been marginalized we've experienced violence we've been attacked we've had uh, folks uh, trying to deny us legal protections yeah. Yeah. right yeah. Mm-hmm. and and most recently in the current federal administration yeah. where there have been very specific targeted attacks and right here in Massachusetts where we had to defend our rights mm-hmm. at the ballot box so it, it's not it's no small import for for us to think of ways that how, the, how folks who are not transgender, gender, non-binary can figure out ways to support other community because it's not, it's not just semantics or not just something to, that, we, that we need to figure out. It's, it's our identities and it's our lives.
3: I mean, if we weren't under attack, would pronouns and messing up matter as much to a trans person? Potentially not. Mm-hmm. If they actually were getting their needs met in the medical system, if they were being well represented and taken care of, and not the butt of every joke, mm-hmm. um, then I think that we would all have a little bit more space for the mistakes. But the problem is that we're talking about a group of people who are living on edge, mm-hmm. who are have had a lifetime of pain and hurt, and so that sometimes when you get that, you know, when you get called out for messing up, what you're really getting is. Is that you're really seeing that person's pain. Mm. Uh, and it could be have been a lifetime of pain, an open a wound that just got reopened. And so I just, you know, I think that's it, sort of like giving a little bit of space for that um, and, and acknowledging that. So that's why we have to work on the larger systems of safety and care for trans people. And then when we mess up the pronouns, it wouldn't have such a big impact.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great place to stop. I thank you both for being your uh, very candid, as you always are, um, and helping uh, the, the uncomfortable ones among us uh, get to a new place. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Jessica Hallam is the LGBT Program Director at Harvard Medical School's Office for Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Partnership. And Grace Sterling Stoll is the Executive Director of Bagley. Coming up... Many feared the dog-eared cookbook, long a staple in American kitchens, was a thing of the past as cooks and those who would be cooks turned to the Internet to download recipes. Yet cookbook sales have remained steady and strong, with millions of sales as proof of the pudding. We sampled the wide variety of some of the new and critically acclaimed cookbooks for our December selection of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley closely. with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call lanyap That's Creole for something extra.
1: Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami, Tommy. Give it to gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house.
2: The song is try Everybody Eats When be. They Come to My House by famed band leader Cab Don't Calloway. Everybody eats when they come to my house, too, because I love to cook. I've got the treasured family recipes on splattered file cards, and my shelves are lined with 81 cookbooks, some older than I am. It turns out the new cookbooks, the ones fans like me are gobbling up, have a lot in common with some of the best novels. They have a story to tell. That's why cookbooks are our December selection for Bookmarked, the the under-the-radar book club. For the last several weeks, I've been happily going back for seconds at a smorgasbord of cookbooks. The goal, to pick my top five of the most recently published. Joining me for this tasty task with her own top five list, one of UTR's regulars, Amy Traverso. She's food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hello again, Amy. Hi there. Well, good news Cookbook sales are up 25% this year, so say the publishing gods. That
0: is really good news because publishing needs any good news it can get.
2: (laughs) I know. But what do you attribute this to? What do you think?
0: I think cookbooks are holding out against digital media because there is nothing like holding the book in your hands, seeing the full-colored photos on paper. And when you're cooking, there is still something really nice about having the book as a guide as opposed to kind of scrolling through your iPad. It feels... A little bit more uh, – cooking is a tactile experience Mm. and a cookbook is a tactile experience. And also, you know, cookbooks still do make really nice gifts. And so there's – you know, giving somebody a digital cookbook is not nearly as, you know, appealing as a gift option as as giving them a a hard copy. So I think the gift market –
2: helps to hold up the cookbook market. We should say that a lot of people gift and buy cookbooks and never make a thing in them.
0: Yeah, but they read them. They're like bedside bed. You know, I have cookbooks on my bedside table that I read and I may or may not actually end up cooking from them, but I'm learning something. I like the story. You know, I think we're looking, this is a time in our country where we're looking for comfort Mm -hmm. and Cook, you know, reading about food is very comforting. Um, so, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of, like, emotional resonance with cookbooks. All right, let's get to it. Okay. Your top five. Uh, well, let's talk about—I brought in a little bit of food for oh, us to yes, taste. So you sure did. So let's <laughs> talk about Sister Pie by mm. Lisa Ludwinski. Now, she is this awesome young baker who um, grew up in Detroit— Moved to New York, worked for Christina Tosi at Milk Bar, the famous mm-hmm. Mama Fuku uh, baking shop. And uh, she went back home to Detroit and started this pie, you know, really bootstrapped it like Kickstarter, small business loans, um, fundraising, started a business called Sister Pie. And it has been a real sort of a revitalizing an engine for this neighborhood, the West Village of Detroit. So they specialize in pies, but they make other stuff I brought in. Some cookies. These are buckwheat chocolate chip cookies with sea salt. And they are fabulous. They're gluten-free.
2: They are fabulous. But
0: they're... (laughs) I mean, I don't have celiac disease. I eat flour. I would make buckwheat cookies in a heartbeat. They are... On their own. I mean the buckwheat adds this incredible nutty mm. flavor. You're not missing anything. It's not no. like, well, I can't have flour, so I guess <laughs> I'll
2: have these. Like these are legitimately delicious cookies. They are deli- I, I can I can attest to that and I am real picky about that stuff. Yeah, so,
0: um, and sprinkle them with like fleur de sel on top so that you get that sweet, salty, crunchy, soft in the middle, melty chocolate, really amazing. So, you know, Lisa's style is just just take familiar things like pine cookies, but do that fun twist. You know, replace the flour with buckwheat or, you know, make um, a pie with... Conquered grapes and goat cheese, you know, sort of like a cheese plate, but in a pie form. Um, She has all these different, like, pie doughs, a cornmeal rose dough, an aged Gouda pie dough when you want something savory, toasted pecan pie dough. It's, It's those fun spins on familiar things that I think really appeals to home cooks. The techniques are not that hard. This is a great book for somebody who feels comfortable baking but wants, like, a little twist that doesn't require, like, a crazy amount. of technique and again her
2: story is part of this because we're gonna as our conversation goes on You'll hear that most all of the top cookbooks have stories attached to them that are really appealing to they really are.
0: And this this is a great story of someone really committing to her hometown in its efforts to revitalize. Their business mission is very much like it's not just enough to make great pies. We have to be, you know, environmentally sustainable, we have to be paying a good wage, we have to be kind of benefiting the community as a whole. That in turn supports us. So you feel good supporting this whole endeavor because it is it's like a holistic
2: pie shop. And we should say, as you move on to your second uh, on your top five list, that all of the books that we're presenting are beautiful. They are I mean, they are really, you know, the photography, the layout, the ease of looking at the recipes. So they're top five because they're operating on two levels. Both as a a gorgeous piece of art. Yes. Um, Also explaining to the home cook, which is who they're aimed at. It all lays out beautifully. Yeah. The, the ones that aren't don't make it. But yeah. This, yeah. The, these really are. So my next
0: three really mm. are kind of about moving into the winter season and the things that I'm craving as days are getting shorter. So the next book, which I'm totally in love with, is Between Harlem and Heaven by J.J. Johnson and Alexander Smalls. They own the famous Minton's Jazz Club and the Cecil Restaurant, which are sort of sister businesses in Harlem. I wanted this book because having had the cinnamon-dusted fried guinea yeah. hen at Minton's, I needed that recipe. <laughs> that is like the best fried poultry. And you can obviously make it with chicken. doesn't have to be guinea hen. So, you know, the cuisine at Minton's in the Cecil is about an Afro-Asian-American food it, it's not fusion. It's like the diaspora. He's exactly. exploring the flavors of the diaspora, and a lot of people don't know that story. And yes. he tells it beautifully in he the book. Does he? Mm-hmm. Does the way this <laughs> you know spices traveled through mm-hmm. Western Africa, the Caribbean? JJ J. Johnson, who's the chef, he has a Caribbean background, so. When they when these two men came together with their vision for the food, it's like they were speaking the same language. Um, even though Alexander Smalls is from South Carolina, it's all those ingredients are intermingling. So they show up in dishes. This book just makes me want to get in the kitchen. Me too. And put some color <laughs> in my food. Grilled watermelon salad with lime mango dressing and cornbread croutons. <laughs> I mean, really. you think of like a panzanella, yeah. <laughs> but like amp it up to a hundred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Collard green salad with coconut mm-hmm. dressing. I mm-hmm. love collards and salad, mm-hmm. and I'm always looking for new ways to use them. They have a sauce. So JJ's background is classical French. He learned all the French mother sauces. They have, uh, you know, you know, we're going I with know, this. I love the it. mother Africa sauce. <laughs> so they came up with their own foundational sauce for their cuisine. With cumin, aromatics, tomato, chili, peanut butter. I want to lick the page. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, I just need to have this in my refrigerator all the time. There's, and the dishes are not necessarily complicated. No. There's there's like a fried cauliflower dish with curry and lime that so simple to make, some rice flour. You make a batter, you flash fry it, you dip it in this incredible sauce. The colors on the page are so beautiful. The dishes are so rich with color and flavor. Delicious. This is going to get me through the winter. This I know, is like, I'm with you. Yeah. When
2: we have agreement on top five, I'll mention it. So Between Harlem and Heaven is on my list, too. I also love that black-eyed pea hummus recipe. Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> it's really yeah, with roti. I know There's a great section when they talk
0: about roti. How it's you know just, it appears mm. South Africa, the yeah. Caribbean, it's uh, in India. You know, it's everywhere, all over the world. Can't
2: can't be any better.
0: <laughs> so, and then on a similar note of just kind of color and sensual beauty. Um, is a book called From the Land of Nightingales and Roses. This is from a small publisher in Massachusetts, actually. Mm. But it's an international book by a, a writer named Mariam Sinai. She is a native Iranian whose family did ultimately have to flee uh, in 2009. She was a trained journalist but grew up with, you know, incredible cooking in her life. And when she had to move to London after they fled, those flavors of home were so essential. So she started a food blog. And um, this book is kind of a beautiful story of the way food can connect us to our heritage of the longing for homeland. And the range of flavors are incredible. I mean, Persian food is so rich in sweet, sour, salt, uh, aromatics, Aromatics in particular, I, I don't know of another food where the aroma is as important as the flavor in such an overt way. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. explicit that the smell is half of it. Here's a dish. Lamb in walnut, pomegranate, mm. and spinach sauce. I mean, a braised lamb dish with pomegranate and walnuts. And
2: are they doing that rice? Is she doing that rice? That, that gets crispy rice? rice? Oh, yes. my God, yes. Which I know about. Okay, listeners, you can judge. From Shaw's of Sunset.
0: Yes, I watch it, too. I totally watch it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this dish from the Shaw's. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Yes, I do watch trash. But I got some recipes from there.
0: Well, you know, I'm i will show you how to make all that food. Um, The photography is stunning. So I brought in a dish from which I love. This is Mm. like cozy comfort food. This is called a saffron potato frittata. I would totally mangle the pronunciation of the Persian. Cuckoo Sibzamini Tabrizi. I'm not even trying. It. i I'll know. just taste So it. this is <laughs> an incredible fluffy potato. You basically mash two large russet potatoes. You beat it with three eggs and some salt baking soda. So you have this fluffy matrix of like a potato souffle. And you layer between that a layer of walnuts, cinnamon, and the dish calls for rose petals that you toast in a skillet mm. and sprinkle. I didn't have access to culinary rose petals, uh, which you can find at, Anika, at Sofra yeah, or right, any store. Right. Um, but I did have access to a spice blend from a Curio spice shop here in Cambridge. Mm. They make a blend called Fleur, and it has rose petals, oh. hibiscus, lavender, and other spices. So I substituted that. And um, this is. Uh, I would have known this was a potato. It's very
2: I, light. It's very light, <laughs> yeah. and
0: it's fluffy, yeah. and it mm. would be a great vegetarian. It's, too. it's vegan. You make yeah. it with olive oil. You, again, this is. It's funny because I didn't set out to make these kind of special dishes mm-hmm. for people who mm-hmm. are on, uh, you know, who are vegan or gluten free, but. It turns out that the soup just happens to be those things. Wow! This is a great side for fish, or you know, it just a, it's comfort, a great buffet. Dish. Yeah, great buffet, great yes. brunch dish mm-hmm. with eggs. Mm-hmm. This is another case where I'm seeing color and richness that's going to make my winter brighter and better. Well, the
2: other thing about her is. Um, Which was a trend and continues to be a trend is that a lot of people who started a blog, a food blog, end up with the cookbooks. Um, I think fewer people now because people are pickier um, than when folks started doing that. But to break through um, at this point is really saying something about the quality of the book and your recipes, I think.
3: Well, and I
0: think we've begun folding in um, Eastern Mediterranean, Middle Eastern flavors into our repertoires in a much more comfortable way, the way – Garlic was once yeah. so bizarre to, you know, or people salsa. in New England. Yeah, or salsa, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this is, I think Persian food is kind of that next frontier for people to explore. Maybe people who have gotten a little more familiar with Greek flavors, the stuff that Anna Sorten's doing at her
2: restaurants here in town. In Otolenghi, everybody's mm-hmm. cooking Otolenghi. Yeah. Well, in we have one t- of yes. his books. Yep. Right, you have so, it on, uh, on your list, Otolangi Simple, everybody knows. Yes. This is Yotam Otolenghi. So actually, we can yes. move into him because right. it's,
0: there are overlapping flavors between nighting from the land of nightingales and roses, and Ota So odalangi Yotam Otolenghi is a chef. He has a, a number of restaurants in in London. Another,
2: and, and he won the best uh, restaurant in the world one one yes, year, right? Yes, yes, yes huge right. like yeah,
0: yes, huge juggernaut. And yeah. his books have been. Like, multi-million bestsellers. Yeah. Um, this it was his effort to speak to everyday cooking. And everyday cooking mm. is definitely a big trend. So um, I think, in a way, that it's just like our country. Yeah. The cookbook world has gotten a little bit bifurcated. The trends are either, like... Kind of crafty, nichey mm. things or everyday. Yeah. So the book is called Simple, and it's an acronym. Oh, he oh, wanted I mean it. every recipe in this book to answer one of the needs of day-to-day home cooking. So the S stands for you're short on time. So if oh. if the rest mm. the recipes have this little um, this letter guide at the top of each recipe, if it says S, it means it's not going to take very long to make. I stands for ingredients, ten ingredients or less. M is make ahead. P is stuff you'd have in your pantry. L is lazy and. uh, you're feeling lazy and E is easier than you'd think. So, I found one recipe that is all of those things. It's a pappardelle with a harissa sauce mm. that you could have in a jar mm. in your pantry, olives and capers. So simple. Mm great every night meal. There's a beef sirloin and basil salad that is S-I-M-E. Um, shrimp and corn fritters. These are mm, everyday yeah. dishes but that still bring in those wonderful, heady, kind of Middle Eastern flavors. His very ingredient-driven, vegetable-driven cuisine is, is very much reflected here. But just a little bit of the, like, mm. I want to crack open this book at 5 o'clock and have something to make.
2: And he's, he's also part of another trend, which is about health and wellness and lots of vegetable attention. You know, yeah Vegetables were short shrifted for a long time, but now they're stars in uh, general cookbooks, but also stars in some of the niche ones, as you say. Yes. Um, and that's really important. So people are going through these uh, cookbooks by people like a yodam who really know... Um, Freshness and finding these great simple vegetable recipes that are you know with a twist that are yeah. delicious and yeah. You, yeah you don't
0: feel you know eating his kind of vegetable it's not vegetarian it's not vegan there is meat but it's not the center of the right. plate which is how we should all be eating anyway exactly for our health for the environment for all those reasons um, centering our meals on vegetables he shows us how in a way that's really delicious and you're not going to miss anything okay, okay so I need to, I know I need to make it yes. five so I'm going to narrow down to one more for my fifth and then we can talk about honorable men. Okay. So my fifth one is Everyday Dory by Dory Greenspan. Dory Greenspan is just that she's sort of like Ina Garten in that she has such a warmth and an accessibility but a sophistication to her food. I think a lot of home cooks just feel very safe in her hands, but they know that what they're going to make is sort of more elevated than what they would normally make, but it still feels extremely accessible. So this book is sort of her collection of favorite everyday dishes that she'll serve at a dinner party when she's not making herself crazy these are the dishes she goes back to time and time again they don't require in, you know intensive technique there's skills that anybody can master and they and as with sister pie these are recipes where it's familiar but with a twist so that you feel like you're doing something interesting there's a lot of stuff that's super friendly for home cooks. There's tons of soups, tons of salads. There's an appetizers chapter. Well, you know what? We need appetizers yes, we because do. we have people over for dinner. Yeah. We want to have a little something Or sometimes out there. you just eat it for dinner. Exactly. Maybe you want to <laughs> yeah. eat light. So right. there's,
2: you know. A... And again, back to her story, I just want to interrupt you. And yeah. by the way, I'm here with Amy Traverso who of Yankee Magazine and WGBH's Weekends with Yankee. And we're, we're salivating over new cookbooks. <laughs> um she tells a story about how she failed at all of her food jobs. Yes, which is before. Then she was a New York Times food columnist. I mean, that's that's a that's a trajectory. Yes, yes. <laughs> and now I don't forgot how many cookbooks she has, but she has a bunch. And I'm it's glad she didn't give up. Yeah, she's she's <laughs> yeah. written thirteen cookbooks. She's won
0: five James Beard <laughs> awards. She is legit. Good, yes. but she's not but she's, afraid yeah, to share her failures. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> right. and and you know her. I've been following her. She's out on a food. She's out on a book tour now for this book. I mean, she there's a there was a. There there's, it was a blogging community. She had a, a baking book that mm. came out. There was a blogging community that sprung up around that one book. And, mm. and on two, it was called Tuesdays with Dory. <laughs> there's a play on Tuesdays <laughs> yes, with Maury. Right. And people would bake from her book and they would post on Tuesdays. And it was mm. so she's this person who draws other cooks to her. So recipes. I mean let's look at the vegetable the vegetable Again, chapter. Veg- vegetables, yeah. Um sweet and smoky roasted carrots, Meat, so good miso corn, mm. paper thin roasted potatoes, miso maple jam sweet potatoes, butter glazed turnips. I mean these are granola top squash and root v- winter vegetable gratin. These are all things you want to be making at home. Meatballs and spaghetti, but instead of just the usual meatballs, she puts oatmeal and walnuts in her mm. meatball. So there's a little bit of that Middle Eastern yes. influence going in. Um, so these are just great home cooking dishes that you can trust an expert to,
2: to All right, help you that's your it. top five. I'm yes. going to run through mine really quickly. First of all, we agree on Harlem in Heaven with J.J. Johnson and uh, Alexander Smalls. And then I have one called Solo, a modern cookbook for a party of one by... Anita Lowe. So a lot of my cookbooks really speak to my lifestyle. She's a former top chef. She's a top chef anyway. But then she was on the show Top Chef, which is how I got to know her. Her One of her recipes was just pulled for People magazine. And so you can see um, this recipe about noodles with um, shrimp. You see how simple it is. The measurements for me are for one person. Thank you so much. I, being from the South, have a hard time cooking any small imam. So this is really wonderful for me. Okay. My next one is Soul Food with Carla Hall, who was also a contestant on Top Chef. People may know her from The the Chew that just, just went off the air. She's just wonderful. And I recall her saying uh, when she lost but became fan favorite on Top Shelf when he said, why did you make it like this? And she said, I-, I cooked it with love. And that's the whole theme of her new book called Soul Food. And it's delightful, just like she is. She's fabulous. We agree on Sister Pie. I have that on my list. I also have Milk Street Tuesday Nights. That's a lovely book. Yeah. And this is Christopher Kimball, who's right here um, in town. The first book, under his new production called Milk Street, went very well. But this one is just what it says. It's like, okay, it's Tuesday night. What am I going to make?
0: And it's (laughs) that big
2: trend of, like, easy home cooking. It's wonderful. Um, So I can't say enough about that. I just love it. All right, so we're going to put our honorable mentions online. We can start talking about them, but I'm going to put the whole segment online so people know to go there and get the whole conversation. But if you picked your top of your uh, honorable mentions, what would it be?
0: I would say the Noma Guide to Fermentation. Oh my so this, god,
2: this is <laughs> this is too much for me. I know, but I know all I know. about it.
0: It's 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 so this is a winter project book. So this for me, I'm loving this book right now because it's I'm settling into home. The weather's getting bad. It's dark out, and I want to start cook. I want projects to yeah. keep myself well, busy this through the winter. One. So he, so this is you know Renee Redzeppi and David Zilber, who's like a fermentation guru. Um, it is a very it's helpful. a tome. It's a tome, <laughs> but one reason it's so long is because it's so full of step by step photos. It shows you exactly what whatever you're making. Okay, I'm a kombucha addict. I love it. I yes. just love the way it tastes. My husband and thinks fermentation it like is hot now. It's, of, it's yes. hot. So it's it it's divided into sections. So you have your sort of. Your lactic fermentation, like sauerkraut and kimchi and things you you put in salt water and ferment. Then you have your kombuchas. You have vinegars. You have um, garums, which is like a fish sauce. Is a garum. Um, you have miso. How to make miso? It's really cool. And if you were looking for projects and you want to be able to make some of the food that they make at Noma in Denmark, mm. which is Obviously, the the most awarded and coveted restaurant in the world. Rene Redzepi says there is a fermented element in every single dish that comes out of the kitchen. So this is a way to kind of get a little taste of what's going on in Denmark. And we live like he does in a climate that has a short growing season. Being able to preserve food and keep that food through the winter is essential to survival in Mm. in Mm. earlier days and essential to pleasure now and health. So this is a little nerdy, but I'm kind of into
2: Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) I, I, I greatly admire him and what he's doing, and I think the book is great for somebody who wants a project. But that would not be me. So, <laughs> so uh, in my my top one, I think, over uh, in honorable mention, may be Sweet Home Cafe, which is a book that was made of the recipes from the food served at the Smithsonian Museum, the new African-American Smithsonian Museum. And one of the lead authors is Jessica Harris, who is a food anthropologist in addition to an historian and so they tell you all the backgrounds of the histories of the, from the diaspora it's a little bit of what's been touched on in some of these other books and it's just a lot of fun and f- while flipping through there I found a recipe that was came from Massachusetts so we're going to put that on oh, cool. It's called Joe Froggers is what they're called but they're oh, actually, Joe Froggers. they're yes. molasses cookies yes, but they came but anyway, so they have the whole story behind that but anyway I wanted to talk to you about whether or not you think apps in the end or the internet in the end will eventually kill what we're enjoying about all these books. I sure hope not.
0: I still believe that um, there are certain media that where the visuals are so important and and digital cannot convey the beauty of the printed image. You know, I when I'm in my kitchen, I certainly will look up recipes on the internet. But when I want to um, either have that experience of, feeling a little bit like I'm being led by the hand, I'm being taught, I'm entering the world of someone, I, I really want to go deeper. It's it's a cookbook for me.
2: Well, I agree with you. And I I brought in today um, one of my early cookbooks that was given to me. It's by Verda May Smart, Gross and called Vibration Cooking. And that was the first cookbook that I ever read that was all story with just a few recipes, oh, that's so, so great. she's got a few things in here that are just laugh out loud. It's like throw some in a pot and boil it, then it's done. <laughs> <laughs> but but the whole book is really all the stories of the people that told her how to make it and where she was and blah blah blah. And I love that trend in the cookbooks now. So for me, right, um, that's what most of my cookbooks. As I looked around auditing my cookbooks for this conversation, I realized they have stories um, and they, to your point, take me someplace else and they're delicious. Um, We're going to go online and do our uh, honorable mentions, but for right now, I have to say goodbye. So thank you so much for joining me. And happy holidays. Yes, happy holidays to you, too. Amy Traverso is our under-the-radar food contributor, the food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and the author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Eat the
1: tables, the chairs, the napkins, who cares?
2: You gotta eat if it chokes you. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at WGBH.org slash news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monaghan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Everybody, when they come to mind